gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp and Rachel Miller is my co-host and... This week, we are joined by Megan Hill. Uh, she has a, a book, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church. And one thing before we bring you in, I wanted to mention, because this is something sometimes of interest to our listeners, at the end of the book, she does have study questions. So this is a book that you could do with you know, a church group, a women's group, um, something like that. It probably would bring up some pretty great discussions or some good discussion questions in there. Or you could even go through them yourself, which is probably a great idea if you're working through this book. So, Megan, thanks so much for being with us today. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background and um, your interests. Yeah, so I am a writer, obviously. I also work as an editor for an organization called the Gospel Coalition. I live in the fine state of Massachusetts with my husband and my four children. My husband is a pastor. Um, we belong to a small PCA church here in Massachusetts, as all PCA churches in Massachusetts are small, um, called West Springfield Covenant Community Church. And aren't you a pastor's daughter as well? Didn't you grow up? I am. I am. I grew up in Connecticut. My dad um, was a pastor in Connecticut for 38 years at the same church. So, Great. Thank you. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is just why you decided to write this book. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, yeah, so a few years ago, I started reading um, a lot of deconversion narratives. And I'm sure that you and many of your listeners have read them too. You know, popular writer who one time was an evangelical now starts questioning things. And often part of that journey is walking away from the church. And a lot of times um, these narratives sort of include um, sort of this idea or this view of going to church and seeing that it's really not that great. And it's, you know, there's people and they just, 
you know, I don't like their politics or they're just sort of awkward people or they, you know, it's just we do worship and it's just not that exciting and I don't feel connected to God. And the the end of many of these narratives, sadly, is leaving the church entirely um, or possibly finding a church that's radically different in theology from from an evangelical church. And I was reading those. And um, on the one level, I felt really sad about these people who were walking away from the church. But then on the other hand, I did sort of understand that the local church is not always very spectacular and it doesn't always seem like the most exciting place to be. And the people there are often pretty ordinary and sometimes really awkward. And so I resonated with that and I sort of began to think, yeah, that is kind of the experience that most of us have if you spend time in the local church. But the testimony of scripture is that the local church is really an extraordinary place and it's the place where God has set his love. And how do we sort of learn to see the church the way God sees the church rather than simply seeing it sort of through our awkward, ordinary experiences there? Megan, why why do you think that we're looking for a place to belong and why is the church uh, the place where we can find belonging? Yeah, I mean, certainly God made us to be relational people, right? And even we go back to the Garden of Eden, and what do we see? Well, the Lord made Adam, and then he says, well, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he made Eve, and we're very quick to point to that passage as a picture of marriage. And I think there's genuine application that comes there about marriage. But I also think that that's sort of our first picture of the church or a congregation of worshipers. And that um, it, Adam couldn't work and worship by himself. He needed this sort of congregation, um, this proto-church to be with him. And so God created that. And so it's I think it's part of how we're even created, that we need other people to uh, encourage us in our work and in our worship before the Lord. And then, of course, you know, as we get to um, the New Testament, you know, we we see that come out even more fully, um, the idea that even in a place like the book of Acts, you know, people come to faith and then immediately they join a church. And that's that's the way God has made us sort of in our creation, but then it's also what he's redeemed us to do is to be part of the local church. And so I think it makes total sense that we'd be looking for that uh, because that's the way God designed us. And you mentioned about like deconversion stories and about that's how you got into looking into this topic. Um, You know, all of us who've been in the church for any length of time have various stories and experiences of things we've been through that have colored our experiences in church. What do you say to someone who isn't sure why they need the church or not even sure that they do need a church? It just be, you know, me and my Bible, um, I'll worship God outside, you know, where I'm comfortable or whatever. How do you talk to someone about why the church is so important? Yeah, I think that, you know, certainly as Christians, whatever we do or prioritize is certainly directed by what God says in his word. And it, is the consistent testimony of scripture that God is gathering his people into churches and that that is fundamental to his plan for his people. And it's fundamental to his design for each one of us that we would be 
part of the church. And there's not really any escaping that in scripture. You know, we have the nation of Israel. Well, that was not just one person. That was a group of people in the Old Testament that God was calling to himself to worship himself. You know, and I mentioned the book of Acts, you know, we don't see just one Christian in the book of Acts. We see these groups that are being gathered together and, you know, thousands were saved and then they were added to the local church. You know, we see in the epistles of the New Testament, these are letters to the churches. The assumption is if you're going to benefit from the word of God, you must be a part of a church because that's where this word is being read out and where it's being taught and where it's being applied. And so I think it's very hard to read your Bible and come away thinking, it's okay for me to be on my own. I think you have to come away thinking, God really wants me to be part of a church. You know, we think about the New Testament has a a lot, uh, a picture of the church and instructions and, um, but how does the Old Testament give us glimpses into the yet to be revealed church? What can we learn from from Old Testament Israel that we can apply today? Yeah, I mean, I think even if you think back to the Old Testament, you know, the Sunday school stories that you have learned even from a child, you know, that the Old Testament is the story of God's work in a group of people. And so, you know, God didn't redeem Moses from Egypt by himself. He redeemed Moses and all of his people. He brought them out of Egypt. Um, You know, God saved Joseph and brought him to power in Egypt, not just for his own sake, but for the sake of his whole family, that this whole nation of people would come along and be saved from this famine and be established here. Um, You know, God sent the prophets, and he didn't send the prophets just to give a message to one person. He sent the prophets to give a message to all of his people together. And so, even as we look at the Old Testament, we're seeing a congregation, it's not called the church yet, but this group of people that God is calling together to worship him. I know, I know it's complicated and not the, the same thing, but I, um, my dad was a convert from Orthodox Judaism. And so a lot of uh, my, well, half my family is Jewish, um, from Reformed, which is kind of a liberal Jew, all mm-hmm. the way to Hasidic, which is about wow. as conservative as, as you can get. And they, even though obviously they don't have Christ, they aren't in the Lord, they do have that same sense of community in um, in their mm-hmm. community of faith, I guess you would call it. Right, yeah. So building on that, how can someone learn to love the local church, either someone who is like a new convert or someone who is, you know, had a, um, a, a difficult background with the church? How does someone learn to love the local church? Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that that we're all sort of growing in this, and we're all, in one sense, learning to love our local church. And as the Lord adds new people to the church, as the Lord adds new people to the church, then those are people that we're continuing to learn and to love. And as our churches change, you know, so we're all sort of in this same boat together of learning to love the church. But I do think the place to start is with what the Bible says about the church. And uh, in this book, I take nine different terms that the New Testament uses for the church, things like beloved or saint or partners in the gospel. And I try to explore sort of how, if we see the people in our church 
the way that the Bible sees them. The Bible describes them as beloved, for example. This is, this is an assembly of people that God loves. Well, when we go, okay, God loves these people. In fact, he loves them so much that he sent Christ to die so that they might be perfect and presented to him as this beautiful bride. Well, then that stirs my heart to love them too, because I want to love what God loves. And so I think when we begin with what the Bible says is true about the church, then it even helps to shape our experience of it. And all of a sudden then the people around us don't seem quite so ho-hum because we realize these are people that God loves and it gives them a new dignity, a new preciousness to our own hearts when we realize these truths about them. So in your book, you talk about the single testimony that we share as Christians. And you know what? There isn't much. I thought about this as I was reading your book. There there aren't a lot of things in this life that unite people from, you know, men, women, all different, um, all around the world, different ages, all, all sorts of different things. But can you talk about the single testimony that we share? Yeah, I sort of came to this, to thinking about this a number of years ago. Um, we lived in Mississippi and we were part of a church there. And there was another church down the road that was largely elderly women. And they were, uh, you know, I'd come to a point where they were going to have to close their church. They couldn't afford to keep it going. So they ended up closing the doors of their church. And this whole group of uh, 20, maybe 30, I don't know, elderly people, mostly women, came and joined our church. So all of a sudden we have this big influx of, um, we used to call them the senior sisters. And when they first came to our church, I sort of assumed that I had nothing in common with them because they were, I'm from up north. I was here living in Mississippi and I was younger and I had a job and I had kids and, you know, and, and they were these elderly Southern women and they had the perfect pearls and they knew how to make the perfect pound cake and they matched their shoes and their purses and, you know, the whole thing. And I just thought, oh, they, I, I don't even know what I have in common with these women. But then as I got to know them and had, conversations in their homes and you know we we shared time together worship together bible studies together all of this as i got to know them i realized that we actually had a lot in common and it's probably stupid i should have realized it from the beginning but you know that they loved christ and they had once been sinners in need of grace and they had god had changed their hearts and they had come to him in faith and the Holy Spirit was even now, you know, even at their saintly old age, continuing to work in their hearts and they still had sins they were struggling with and God was still working in them. And um, it brought me to see that, you know, sort of everyone in our churches who has come to Christ has sort of this same story. And we all were dead in our sins and we all needed Christ to come and to save us, to the spirit to change our hearts. And we're now trying to walk in new obedience. And our stories, honestly, at the most deep fundamental level, no matter what our outward circumstances are, are basically the same story. And so I think that that unites us then, right? Because then the people around us in the church, they're not actually fundamentally different than us. They, you know, they're living and they can tell the same story that we tell. And so it gives us this affinity, this unity with them. I really enjoyed the story uh, of the, the church women who had joined your church, the older ladies. And um, for me growing up, it reminded me of the ch- church that my dad was pastor of when I was a kid. It was a, a church in a an older church in a neighborhood that was in the middle of a transformation between 
uh, into a Hispanic neighborhood. So that it was an older white population and a very young Hispanic population together, which is a very interesting blend of people. But as you described, the, the ladies with their matching you know, hats and shoes and the perfect pound cake. It reminded me of, of a number of women that I, I knew in my childhood. Mm-hmm. Every, every church needs one or two of them at least. Right. You know, the women that have the, the peppermints that they hand out. And as the pastor's daughter and my mom played piano. So my brother and I were usually, you know, sitting as orphans in church by ourselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, those were the women that usually brought us along. We sat next to them and they fed us candy. So, yeah. <laughs> It was great, you know, wonderful memories of church. Uh, uh, but you're right, the stories that they can tell us and share with us, and the thing that they have been through, and, and that's true for everyone in the church. They all have something. I like how you pointed out how we all have something that um, God has given us that we bring to the church body, into our particular church body mm-hmm. that is needed. Um, and that's, and I thought that was a very uh, important uh, point that you made. Yeah, and in First Corinthians 12, um, Paul writes that God sets the members in the body, each one as he chooses. And I think that's so precious that each person who's in your church has been set there by God in that perfect place with those perfect gifts, exactly what is needed for that time and place. And, and that gives us confidence ourselves too, right? Sometimes we feel like, oh, we're the, the third wheel or whatever in the church and we're not doing too much. We're not that helpful. And or whatever it might be, we don't really fit in. And to remember, no, God sets the members in the body, each one as he chooses, he sets you here, because that's exactly where he wanted you to be, and he has good purposes for you here. Mm-hmm. It's a great reminder. One of the things that you did in, in organizing your book is each of the chapters is um, about a different word that uh, helps define us as the, the body of Christ, or as the, as the church. Of course, his body is one of them. But uh, I particularly loved beloved that we are we are loved. I think he said somewhere that um, God loves us because He loves us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a beautiful reminder. Um, but let's see. We have beloved, called, church, flock, body, saints, brothers and sisters, gospel partners, and multitude. I think are the different chapter names, and. Is there one of those in particular that, as you were doing the study and as you were writing on this, that was kind of unexpected to you to come across that this is a way to define the church? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I really enjoyed, um, I have a chapter called Saints and talking about sort of how our holiness is interconnected and um, that God is you know, saints in scripture means the holy ones. And so often in scripture, the, the people of the churches are called the saints. And Paul uses that term over and over. And he uses it in some really surprising places, like he ta- calls the church at Corinth the saints. And, you know, if you know anything about the Corinthians, they were a mess, right? I mean, they had sexual immorality, they had mm-hmm. incest, they were fighting with each other, they were, you know, just not thinking about each other and not being kind. I mean, they just, they just had trouble and trouble and trouble in, in Corinth. And yet Paul calls them the holy ones. And um, I don't think I would be quite that bold maybe, but, but Paul was because he knew that was what was true of them, that, um, that God was making them holy and ha- you know, had made them holy in one sense on the cross and then was at work in them by his spirit, making them holy. And 
that gives me a lot of optimism um, for the people in my own church and for myself as well, that 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 we are being changed all the time. We're being changed and that the spirit is making us holy and um, that he's using us to make each other holy. And I think sometimes we can get in this idea where sort of my own progress in holiness, my um, putting sin to death and loving Christ and knowing his word and obeying him and that all of that is sort of an individual pursuit. And I think that's one of the great blessings of the church that no, um, you also have a whole bunch of other people who are praying for you to be holy. You know, whenever we pray the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, we're praying for the whole body. Lead us not into temptation. You know, we have people who are looking out for us, who are exhorting us, who are um, caring for our souls, who are setting us examples of godliness so that we can follow them in our own lives. So um, that was really very precious chapter for me just to meditate on how God had given me these people in this church to make me holy. I noticed in the chapter, and it really kind of surprised me because uh, I hadn't thought about it that way before, but that um, when when scripture refers to the believers as saints, it's always plural. Like it's not saint this or saint that referring to a person particularly, but that it's a corporate designation that we are the saints um, or the saints here or the saints there. Um, and I really, uh, I was surprised by it, but I really appreciated the, the implications there. Yeah. When I was growing up, well, I, I live and I did live in a very heavily Roman Catholic area and my school bus as a child would always drive past St. Mary um, Catholic church. And so there was a statue of Mary and she was out, there's like this huge lawn in front of the church. And there was this, she was like all by herself, this, this, you know, stone, marble, whatever statue of Mary. And it would be snowing or raining or whatever. And the school bus would be driving past the lawn. And she just looks so like, sad and lonely out there all by herself in this big lawn. And um, I thought about that again as I was writing this chapter and realizing, no, you know, God's holy ones aren't like these particularly eminent saints and they aren't out there by themselves in this lawn in the rain, but we're all together. And when our church meets, this is a, a company of saints and we're, we're, we're in this together. I heard somebody say that in American Christianity, we have this very individualistic idea in the church. Like I do Christianity on my own and then I come on Sunday and offer something instead of the church and our community being central uh, to our faith. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with, it, especially if they've had, you know, some of these bad experiences in the church. But some of those those chapter titles, could you talk about how maybe considering those, um, whether it be saints or one of the other ones, is important to how we think about the church and our community and our belonging? Yeah, another one that I talk about in the book um, is the use of the word brothers or brothers and sisters, um, and how often in the New Testament, um, when the New Testament writers want to address the church, they say brothers, which is sort of a gender neutral term, which means brothers and sisters, actually, you know, both genders are included there. And um, I think that can be helpful to us when we realize, okay, so a family, uh, you know, sort of biological family, and I have adopted children, so I'm not using biological to exclude children who come into your family by another means, but just as a term. So a, a biological family or a nuclear family are not really people that you've chosen for yourself. Um, but they're people that God has chosen for you. You didn't get to choose your parents. 
Um, you don't really get to choose your children or your grandchildren or your cousins or, you know, aunts and uncles. These are these are people you didn't choose for yourself, but they are, in fact, your family and they're kind of what you got. And I think that it's good for us to remember that about the church, that, you know, the, the people in our churches are not people we've chosen for ourselves, but they're people that God has chosen for us. And I think that's especially important, as you said, Colleen, kind of in this day and age where we tend to be individualistic. And then we also, I think, tend, we recognize we need community. I mean, I don't think there's anybody out there that just, well, maybe a few people, but that are, you know, going to go off and be a complete hermit. We do recognize we need other people, but we sort of select the groups of people that we want to be with. And so we join a social media group of people that have a similar interest to us or who are in the same line of work as we are, or, you know, that we have the same aesthetic as them and we discuss movies together and books together or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. Um, but the church is not an affinity group in that sort of sense of people who naturally already have the same interests as me, apart, of course, from Christ. But it's sort of this motley group of people that God has chosen for me, just in the same way that a family is. And I think that can encourage us like, okay, these are the people that God has given me. These are the people that God has called me to love. And so I'm going to benefit even from this sort of strange assortment of people trusting that they're the people that God has called my family. That's a good point about these are the people that God has, has given us, right? Or the body that he's put us into. Um, and much like our our own families that we are uh, either born into or placed into or adopted into or married into, you know, we didn't we didn't really choose them in that mm-hmm. way. Like, mm-hmm. um, and then you know, everybody has their quirks and their personality differences and things that we learn to to live with and encourage each other with. It's it's, it's, a, it's a really good image, and I, I love the fact that Scripture uses the image of family um, and the fact that our church family then, uh, believers, become closer to us, even than the people that we may look like we share the most with, either yeah. from background or, you know, uh, interests, other interests. All, th- all through this book, and then thinking about our current challenges today with, um, with the, the situation around the world, whether or not we can meet in person, or we're meeting remotely, or we're meeting some combination of ways to, to meet as a church and meet as a community. Um, I think it's been interesting to see how people have realized both that they miss the church body and how much they feel that they need that, that weekly reminder of who they are and whose they are um, and the importance of worship. All of the, I don't know that, you know, I'm sure that there are some who have left, who aren't as encouraged as others through this, but I, I have found it very encouraging how much I've seen people just recognize the fact that um, the church is a very important part of their lives or should be a bigger part, a more important part of their life. Um, it's sad that it's taken such a challenging situation to get there, but I love the fact that people are talking these ways about realizing that their need for community. Um, so, in your book, you talk about the invisible realities that undergird our earthly worship. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and about how that, um, 
affects our experience of the ordinary weekly worship in our churches? Yeah, so when we come to church, um, to a worship service in our churches, it's, you know, on the outward, from an outward perspective, it's not that exciting because mainly every week we get together for an hour and we do pretty much the same things. We pray, um, we sing some songs, we read some scripture, Maybe there's um, an offering that's taken. Um, then the uh, pastor or elder preaches to us and there's maybe some more prayer or benediction and we go home. And the next week we come back and we do basically the same things every week. And so on the one level, right, it doesn't look that exciting. And so that's where we need to turn to what the scripture says about our worship and what is really going on here. And I think it's fascinating because the scripture allows us to see that, uh, as you said, Rachel, that there are really spiritual realities that undergird what is very simple and repetitive on the surface. And I talk in this chapter a lot um, from the book of Hebrews, um, in Hebrews 12, and I'll just um, read these verses here quickly, but um, the writer to Hebrews says, he's talking about the church gathered for worship, and he says, You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And so he's saying when you gather for worship, it may just be a handful of people on a snowy February evening doing the same things they've been doing for 25 years, but really you're joined in worship by the innumerable angels, you know, that the angels in heaven are participating in our worship. Um, The assembly of the firstborn and the spirits of the just made perfect. So the saints who have died and gone ahead of us are in some ways invested in our worship and to Jesus, that Jesus is present in our worship. And, you know, we're all familiar with that passage in Matthew where two or three are gathered to my name. There I will be. And by his spirit, Jesus promises to be with us and to God, you know, that we're coming to the very throne of God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the place where we have an audience with the most high God. And so when you walk into church and it's like, okay, another Sunday, same people, same thing. When we realize, no, this is, there are spiritual realities that are happening here. And this is really glorious. And this is bringing us into heaven itself. It can be a huge encouragement. You know, as we're talking, one of the things I keep thinking about is um, I know even from our Facebook group that we have women that have not had good experiences in the church or maybe they've had some good and, and some not great. And um, I'm sure you've heard some of these stories too. And maybe they're feeling discouraged. Is there some sort of encouragement that you could offer to someone that's that's really struggling, that's feeling like they aren't? finding that community in church. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that that is true probably of every person who's ever been at a church at one time or another. And so sort of the first encouragement that I would offer is that you're not alone. And that if we are, if we spend any time in the local church, which is a group of sinners, we are going to be sinned against. We're going to be overlooked. 
we're going to be at times mistreated. Um, the, I mean, those are just, that is a reality. And so the people around you, even though they may look like they belong perfectly and have not had hardship in the church, they probably have too. And so just to know that you're not alone and that there are many, many people who have suffered at times in their churches and have really had a hard time there. And that's not um, an uncommon experience. Uh, in fact, it's, it's pretty much universal. And there I often look um, to the Apostle Paul, who, you know, he has some really bad experiences in the church. And um, he, you know, he, uh, in Second Timothy, he talks about how he had a court appearance and none of the Christians came with him when he had to make this court appearance, you know, um, that everyone had deserted him. He talks about how th there was nobody there that was going to help him. Um, and we see from in other churches, people were speaking poorly about him and suspecting him of preaching only for money. And, you know, I mean, he just, he just had some really bad church experiences. And yet, you know, he is one of those ones that we've been talking about who called the churches the saints and called them his brothers and sisters and reminded them that they were beloved. And so he, I think, really looked to the Lord to say, help me to see these people the way that you see them. Help me to love them the way that you love them. And we know that that's something that the Lord delights to do. The Lord wants us to love what he loves, and he gives us his spirit to help us to do that. And so that would be sort of my second experience encouragement would be just to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit to um, to give you love even for people who seem unlovely uh, in the same way that the Lord so graciously loved us when we were so unlovely um, for him to put that love in you and to work that love in you um, and to trust him to bring that about in your heart. I've thought about it in terms of with the church being our family and our brothers and sisters we, we have these situations even in our, in our own families, don't we? So um, maybe there's a disagreement with a sibling or a parent, but they are still your, still your parents, still your sibling. You're still gathering for Thanksgiving dinner. Um, yep. And so it's, a, it's been helpful for me to remember that. Well, I know that there's already a couple girls in our group that are reading your book, and we're going to link the book in the episode notes. So you can go uh, check that out. And again, um, this would be a good book to do with the group from church, I think, because it would bring up some of these discussions together to consider. So, Megan, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, this was really, really great and really helpful. Colleen and Rachel, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk.